You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. It's not easy being a tree. You're at the bottom of the food chain and you're constantly surrounded by things that want to kill you. To make it even worse, you're stuck to the ground and can't outrun your enemies like animals can. In this episode, Greg Packman comes on the show to give us an introduction to the different health problems that trees have to contend with, including vertebrates, invertebrates, fungus, virus, bacteria, and abiotic stresses. Greg's an award-winning arboriculturist working for the London Borough of Islington as Senior Tree Inspector, while simultaneously working closely with community groups, leading tree walks, and leading events such as the Urban Tree Festival. He's also an Executive Committee member of the London Tree Officers Association and a trustee of a tree planting charity. So, yeah, welcome to the show, mate. How you going? I'm doing well, doing well, thank you. How about yourself? Yeah, groovy. I guess in this episode, Greg, we're going to be speaking quite broadly. So we're going to use a few specific examples here and there, but I don't think we could possibly cover all tree pests and diseases in under 90 minutes. It's a very huge subject, especially with us talking across two different continents. Makes it it even larger. (laughs) That does add a bit of uh, spice to it, doesn't it? So can we start off with why are trees vulnerable to pests and diseases? Okay. So in I'm I'm reducing trees down to their absolute most basic form and there'll be a few listeners who who might object and say no that's too basic. There's a whole bunch of more nuance to it, but in their absolute most basic form trees are just big stacks of carbohydrates and sugars. They've been absorbing water and nutrients from the soil and they've been creating their own energy and carbohydrates from photosynthesis. Um, And basically just a tree is just locked up carbohydrates and a lot of the uh, pests and diseases and also the organisms that live mutualistically, symbiotically and beneficially, they're all largely after the same thing because one of the big differences is while trees can form their own food, in a sense, from photosynthesis, a lot of these pests and diseases can't. So that what they're after, basically, is the energy resource from the tree. In some cases, uh, like the mycorrhizal fungi, they give something back in return, some of the harder to access nutrients, some of the diff- more difficult to reach water, as well as a form of protection. Um, in cases of the more slow acting fungi, uh, the tree can outgrow the rate of decay. But when it comes to things like, you know, as one example, perhaps sap, sap sucking insects, heavy infestations can end up doing more damage to the tree because they're, they're taking too much energy out of the leaves, it can lead to wilting, it can lead to increased stress and reduced resilience to the tree. Um, with particularly aggressive uh, fungi and diseases so from a uk perspective historically uh, dutch elm disease has been one of the most destructive tree diseases we've had in the last hundred years um and more recently ash dieback 
So they're ones which are far more far more aggressive. And they're still after that resource in the tree. They need the tree to complete their life cycle and to get their food. But they can operate at such a high rate that they end up killing lots and lots of trees. Um, so, yeah, I'd say in terms of vulnerability, it's because these organisms want something from the tree. But where we're kind of seeing an, an increase in the, uh, I suppose, destructiveness of these diseases, as well as the rapid increase of their arrival, is because of the global plant trade and moving plants across continents, you have uh, a tree disease or a fungi, a bacteria, which has sort of evolved in the ecosystem with the native trees over millennia that has its own um has its own predators it has its own food chain the trees and the plants of it have got a form of defense but where you have introduced and new diseases and uh, pests they're being brought into an environment where there's no natural predator where all of a sudden it might have a more um, might have better growing conditions because it, it may mm. be that say one tree disease it might be suppressed in hot weather it, it might be from central america or the mediterranean or australia or anywhere like that but it, it can come over to somewhere like the uk where all of a sudden maybe because the temperature is different it can then operate at a better rate because it's more favorable and of course there's no natural predators so in england or the united kingdom we're seeing an explosion in um, pests such as the oak recessory moth and new diseases such as ash dieback coming through in part because of um, the importation of, of trees and not, not very great biosecurity times but also because you have these new organisms coming into new environments where there's no natural controls and predators and they're kind of running riot which is having quite a bad impact on our uh, trees and plants mm, Absolutely so that's one way that humans can have a negative impact on trees is foreign yeah. pests. So let's go. I guess we could also said there are other ways as well. For example, um, planting the wrong tree in the wrong place. Maybe it's too shady and the tree is already vulnerable or, you know, we can crash a car into a tree and create a big sort of canker in the tree itself. Yeah. So with, um, again, sort of taking trees back to something that's really, really basic. One of the analogies I kind of use is that a healthy tree is just a continuous tube of water coming up from the roots, up the trunk, into the branches and out through the leaves. And with the, the wood decay fungi especially, they, they, their spores can't germinate in um, functioning wood or wood where there's no or very, very little oxygen. So what they need is dysfunctional aerated wood. So where you have um, trees that have been wounded or say you know, a vehicle has uh, crashed into the tree, opened up the wood, um, a squirrel or a rabbit or a deer has been eating away at the bark um, or a tree surgeon's pruned off a branch or maybe even just during drought, the water levels have dipped in the tree. You get patches of dysfunction where air bubbles um, appear in the wood. Then all of a sudden the... Uh, fungi which can't germinate in hydrated wood are now able to um, start germinating and activating in the dysfunctional wood which is kind of why tree health is so so important because a tree full of functional wood functional water 
is in effect a healthy tree and a healthy tree can prevent not all of them but a lot of uh biotic abiotic problems and various diseases and stresses right so that makes a lot of sense so what are some other ways that we as humans can make trees more vulnerable than they need to be so looking at an urban tree perspective because that's where a lot of my work is um, we're planting trees in areas which they they're not used to growing in they haven't evolved in um you know trees didn't evolve in tarmac and concrete so mm-hmm. where we're planting trees in these areas we're planting them in not very good soils where there's not a lot of there's very little water very little water retention not a lot of nutrients a lot of compaction um all of which are not not good for tree health and regrowth but then because of things like air pollution um the urban heat island effects just increased temperatures reflected light it's stressing a lot of these trees which is weakening them and making them more susceptible um mm. one of the big overlooked problems is so so compaction it's really a very insidious problem and it's yeah, because it's because it's underground people just don't a lot of people just don't take any focus on it the amount of events and places i've been to where i've seen cars parked up right to the base of a tree um mm-hmm. construction workers storing materials right at the base of a tree all of which is compacting and treading down with soil particles which makes it more difficult for roots to grow through makes it more difficult for water to move and in that you can have the build-up of bad uh, pathogenic uh, fungi and bacteria and phytophthoras as well as you know, not being able to absorb nutrients and the water can have a really negative impact on trees and then you mentioned the wrong tree in the wrong place um part of plant, planting trees can be a bit of a guessing game so we don't always know if it's a newer tree we don't always know how that will will uh, right. take to new environment but even where we have the knowledge we're still you know, inappropriate trees being planted in bad locations. Um, the part of London where I work, it's a very uh, clay-heavy soil, so we have a lot of issues with subsidence, tree-related subsidence. And historically, there's been some quite bad species of tree planted. And I say bad species of tree purely, purely in the context of subsidence because there's a lot of water-demanding trees being pl- that were planted on shrinkable clay soils, which are now having you know, problems such as uh, subsidence claims come up against them. And then the option is do a really, really heavy reduction where you're moving 50, removing 50 to 70% of the canopy or removing the tree. So, yeah, there's mm. many, many, many ways in which humans don't make it particularly nice for trees, really, which is a shame. <laughs> so now I'd like to go over some of the major types so let's start with uh, vertebrate pests. So the biggest ones, what are some of the signs and symptoms of a vertebrate pest? Uh, how do they affect plant health? And what are some of the best ways that we can deal with vertebrate pests in general? Uh, can I include people as, as first? Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, yeah, planting the wrong tree in the wrong place is uh, a big problem. Um, 
people not really appreciating and realizing how trees work so um or what trees need to grow so yeah planting it in bad locations um just rather than pruning a tree properly just hacking branches off leaving large open wounds tears um we get i don't know how what situation like in australia but we get an awful lot of uh vandalism problems which is a shame mm. like one of the things i've come across a lot in, in urban parks it's a bit worrying actually is um knife and axe marks on trees where people have just been attacking trees um neighbor disputes about overhanging trees we get quite a few cases of neighbors who poisoned their neighbor's tree which is just <laughs> nasty but um yeah and then also just bad work to trees not caring for them um mm. so in terms of yeah other vertebrate pests so in the uk the most common vertebrate pests would be things like squirrels gray squirrels uh rabbits deer uh and some birds um, yeah that's kind of <laughs> about as dangerous as as our wildlife <laughs> yeah so talking to an australian <laughs> it was very 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 pathetic with what you have over there but um yeah, things like squirrels, they so again, they're they're not so the grey squirrel is an introduced species from North America, which has been hyper hyper successful in how it's established in the country, to the point where they've um majorly outcompeted and done a lot of damage to the native red squirrel population. But they they're arboreal creatures, they live in trees and they will strip bark off of branches to build their drays their nests um then there's a couple of theories about what else they do so squirrels as rodents have continually growing teeth so they need to constantly file down their teeth stop them growing too long and then they tend to do that on tree branches so there's a lot of bark stripping which can lead to mm. dead branches yeah ecologically dead branches good thing dead within a tree it's great yeah. for the wildlife but from a, like an urban tree perspective, you have the increased risk factor from dead and falling branches. From a forestry perspective, you have the, the loss of quality timber. So squirrels have been a real pest, a bit of a nuisance. Um, in London, they've become a huge tourist attraction because they're so domesticated and friendly that you'll see squirrels running up to people wanting to get fed. So mm. squirrels have become a really popular part of London's tourism but a real menace for tree managers. And then the other ones are things like uh, rabbits and deer who will just sort of try and eat away at the bark of the tree. So a lot of new and young um, trees when they're planted tend to have deer or rabbit guards put around them to try and protect them. Uh, deer, because they're a bit taller, they tend to sort of bite off the buds of the tree. So from a forestry perspective, you're losing that straightness of the timber which isn't ideal mm. as well. And because we've, again, when I say we, I mean in the UK, we've lost a lot of the more traditional um, deer park and pasture management. So deer population, although there is some uh, venison production around the country, it's not by any means uh, a large thing. So we're, there's been a real explosion of deer across the country, um, which of course is having an impact on tree health. One of the other more interesting things is 
um, ringneck parakeets, really quite pretty, small, green, parrot-like birds, which are very, very squawky. Um, they've been in been in London for a couple of decades now. Uh, there's a whole range of theories as to who intru- introduced them. My favourite one is that Jimi Hendrix brought them into the UK somehow. But these are they're really really smart little birds, and they tend to love pecking away the flowering buds off fruit trees, uh, be it ornamental cherries or apple trees. They just love eating the buds, which of course, from an ornamental perspective, we're you know, losing that blossom, and from a fruiting perspective, losing the potential apples. But from a tree health perspective, it hasn't been studied that much. But one of the theories is that it is impacting. Um, tree health because the uh, the parakeets especially are sort of eating away at the well the buds and that's what that's what the tree needs to grow is the buds um, and uh, we've got a wonderful tree in the UK called the hornbeam which is it produces its seeds via nuts and uh, I've seen parakeets actually strip a hornbeam of all, all of its seeds because they're very nutrient and fat dense so again they're after that food source um, I don't quite know. Yeah, I, I don't know enough about the Australian um, vertebrates other than um, well, I think koalas are fairly docile in trees. So I, I don't know <laughs> if they're classed as a as a as a problematic species. No, they're not a pest. I don't think any Australian would say a koala is a pest, and if not, we'd probably chuck them out. We probably wouldn't let them come back. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. possums are one, yeah, for sure. Possums are one, particularly. Um, for smaller plants, smaller trees. So when they're saplings and that, once they get to a certain size, I don't think that possums tend to do too much damage here. Uh, could be wrong on that. Um, but what about sort of ways that we can deal with them? So you mentioned guards when trees are younger. Um, is there anything else that we can do to prevent vertebrate pests from killing our trees or damaging our trees? Yeah, there's one thing that just popped into my mem- my mind, actually, is... Um... Dog damage, we get quite a bit of dog damage in parks mm. where sometimes dogs just get excited and they need to release, release some energy by fighting <laughs> on a tree. But we also get, really sadly, people training fighting dogs by strengthening their jaws, by getting them to bite trees. That's been a, a real increase recently. Um, so with squirrels, <laughs> as a vegetarian, I don't like saying this, but the best way really is kind of culling them or shooting them because they're so they're so successful at reproducing um there's a lot of animal welfare groups who who claim that you can somehow infuse a contraceptive type thing in into their food but I, i don't know how successful that would be but um but traditionally historically a lot of the pest control with vertebrate pests has been culling uh, you know, squirrels and deer. Um, if yeah, if, if the meat can be sustainably used for people to, you know, I think squirrel meat, from what from what I'm told, is quite good, quite good, very lean meat, and venison is a really high quality, uh, healthy meat as well. So if they if they can be used that way, I think I think that's a, a good thing. But um, out I suppose in the more humane ways, then squirrels there's not really too much else you can do to control them because every squirrel proof bird feeder i've ever ever come across for squirrels are too clever they get three so squirrels are almost (laughs) 
they're too clever for their own good. But things like deer and rabbits, you, you can put rabbit guards and deer guards. Um, you can try and exclude areas, so uh, deer fencing, um, because then you don't just have the uh, trees that are benefiting, you also have the general wa uh, wildlife uh, and ground flora improving as well. Um, again, parakeets, there's not a great deal you can do to stop them other than uh, preventing invasive pests coming into the UK or into any country, really. Yeah. So I guess the opposite of vertebrate pests would be invertebrate pests. So that means any pest that doesn't have a backbone. So, you know, mollusks, insects, that sort of thing. Can you walk us through some of the biggest sort of offenders, I guess? You mentioned sap suckers before. That would be one of them. And yeah. how do they affect plant health and how can we deal with them? So I suppose from a horticultural perspective, one of the better known invertebrate pests would be uh, aphids, I suppose. Um, they're just one example, perhaps the best example of sap suckers. Mm. So these are just small insects which get their food from uh, you know, drinking um, sap and energy out of tree leaves. Um, in many cases, they can go about their business without doing too much damage to the plants for tree. Um, there's there's a number of diseases. There's a particularly nasty one, a bacteria called Xylella fastidiosa, which is devastating olive crops across the Mediterranean. That's spread through sap-sucking insects. Fortunately, as far as I know, not aphids, but there are. So that's a byproduct of um, some invertebrate pests. But um, in extreme cases, they can be far too numerous and take too much um, sap and nutrients out of the tree or the plants. So that can you know, really, really weaken the trees or the tree's energy resources and also its defense. Um, from a, a biocultural perspective, from my perspective, the ones that the invertebrates that I deal with the most tend to be either caterpillars or invertebrate larvae. So one of the bigger problems that we've had in the last uh, 15 years, I suppose now, is an introduced um, caterpillar moth species called the oak processionary moth, which is it's actually quite a pretty little caterpillar. It's like a black and white caterpillar. It's very, very hairy. And they're very sort of gregarious caterpillars. They sort of hang around in big groups, sometimes anywhere between 10 to several hundred. But the problem is, is that these hairs that they're covered in are poisonous it's part of the you know the caterpillar's defense mechanism it's a toxin called thermotopin or something like that if you touch it it can bring out a very very nasty rash um but so these caterpillars they can uh, the, the moth lays the eggs on a tree they hatch into caterpillars the caterpillars then eat their way over the leaves i've never seen it myself in the uk but there have been cases particularly in the mediterranean where a particularly bad infestation can completely defoliate uh, a tree. So then, of course, if the tree doesn't have any leaves and it's not photosynthesizing, if it's not photosynthesizing, it's not creating energy. If it's not creating energy, it's not growing and it's not defending itself. Um, so fortunately, from a tree health perspective, the oak processional moth is more of a human health risk because of the rash. And it's very, very difficult to remove, uh, naturally remove um, the hairs 
and that they they create nests like webbing nests to um hatch into their adult form um of moths but um so that's sort of there on the tree for several years and if you touch it then you're going to have a nasty rash and there's very very few predators of that species natural predators because it's an introduced species in the earlier instar forms of uh, the casper's development some of the native birds like uh, blue tits and, and robins can eat uh, the caspillars but that's before they they get their toxic hairs so after that they're almost uh in well they can't be uh predated basically uh, there has been uh, a wasp well, not a wasp but a fly uh, a carcelia fly found which is a natural predator so that's quite an interesting example of one of what's what's happening but um one of the other invertebrate pest problems is um some beetles some beetle and moth species where they lay their eggs inside the tree and then the larvae eat away at the wood inside the tree one of the worst cases which fortunately isn't established in the uk yet is the asian longhorn beetle which is also another really really attractive beetle again it's a lovely black and white um quite a large beetle about four about four centimeters long i think but that's a bit unusual for some beetle species and that the larvae can actually eat away through living wood as far as i know and in china especially it's been a huge 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 problem where the larvae have basically been killing lots of trees such as poplar and, and box elder which are quite economically important trees over there for timber so the larvae are just munching away through the tree killing the tree the trees then fall over there's no timber valley left there's a dead tree uh, there's no economic value which is what the trees are grown for and um, there have been a couple of sightings in the uk <clears throat> but they've been dealt with and eradicated uh, then there's a few other species like uh, gypsy moth, which isn't as bad as the Asian longhorn beetle, but that's that's can sort of munch its way through trees quite successfully um, as well. So with the, uh, the the more native invertebrate pests, <clears throat> there are quite a few effective um, natural control measures, but with the introduced invertebrate pests. One of the big problems is a there's no natural predators being able to um, responsibly control them is difficult to the point of impossible and sadly a lot of the control measures are, are basically almost like a scorched earth policy it just fell mm. burn and destroy the infected uh, af af affected trees right so it's back to the ipm again isn't it i guess so if we can get it off with our hands or you know maybe not so much yeah. with the itchy caterpillars or with some of the massive um amounts of trees that you have to work with in a job like yours but ideally you know we'd be hoping to increase plant health and go through our ipm and leave the most harmful chemicals until last absolutely yeah there's one of the problems with the eight procession is um the way you, you can spray an insecticide over the tree and it's very much a case of right which is the least worst option because one of the worst ones which i think has now been banned fortunately it's just a blanket covering of it destroys everything on the tree so 
you spray it and you're not just getting the caterpillars, you're getting every invertebrate species killing it, mm. which is tragic. But there is a less worse option which only targets Lepidoptera species, so caterpillars. Um, unfortunately, because of the, the time of year when the caterpillars emerge of the processory moth, is it tends to be a couple of weeks before the native species. So you can spray a targeted insecticide over the tree. In theory, it only targets Lepidoptera species. And at that time of year, it should only be affecting the OPM. So that's like, so I, I refer to it as the, 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 the least worst option, mm. but it, it still has a wider collateral impact. Totally. So now let's move on to some of the main fungal pests. What are some of the signs and symptoms that you look out for? And how can fungus affect plant health? And how can we deal with different fungal pests? So when it comes to fungi, especially, there's thousands, if not millions, or there are millions of species of fungi. But when it comes to trees, there's definitely thousands hundreds of thousands maybe even millions of species uh, that have an impact or a role with trees and in a lot of cases the fungi can be working beneficially so the mycorrhizal fungi where the fungi are taking carbohydrates from the tree but in return giving the tree you know increased water uptake as well as other, other nutrients that's a very beneficial symbiotic mm relationship you can have the saprophytic species so they're the dead wood decayers so those are the ones which are, are absolutely no issue to the tree at all they're just decaying dead wood be it dead wood on the tree either in the heartwood or on branches dead branches or they're uh, decaying the um, dead wood on the ground sort of taking it back into the soil so they make up the bulk of species um, but then you have the more, say, <laughs> so there's uh, a movement in the UK, this group called the Ancient Tree Forum, and a few other more ecologically minded tree-based people who get, <laughs> you can get very, very upset if you use the word, words like uh, attack or pest or uh, pathogen <laughs> when it comes to fungi. I get where they're coming from, but there are, looking at it from a risk perspective, there are definite issues surrounding some fungi. But again, what I said about trees being uh, you know, sticks of carbohydrates, one of the key distinctions is trees create their own carbohydrates. Fungus, fungi can't create their own carbohydrates. They're, they're more similar to us in that they need to take their food from other sources. So all fungi, to varying extents, they're, they, they're interacting with trees because they need that carbohydrate, that sugar resource, which they can't generate themselves. And in the majority of cases, that's completely fine, can be very beneficial. But you, you can have the real nasty fungi. Again, so I'll just uh, jump, jump from one thing to another very quickly here. So... Again, fungi is such a broad kingdom that you have the, you know, like the fairy tale toadstools, you have the mushrooms that you can buy in shops, you have, you know, truffles, you have these amazing bracket fungi on trees. But then you have microscopic fungi, which produce almost no fruiting bodies. And then you have other ones which 
aren't pretty or attractive fungi, you wouldn't really notice them, but some of them can be very, very destructive to trees. So a couple of examples of particularly nasty fungi-related tree diseases. Um, you know, Dutch elm disease has been one of the most globally destructive um, sweet chestnut blight. For in North America, that's been devastating. Um, Cancastana plain, um, Ceratocystis, is uh, one that's doing horrific damage across mainland Europe with the, the plane trees. And these are all fungi, which are vascular wilt fungi. So part of their life cycle is they can um, infect a tree. So something like Dutch elm disease, the fungus comes in on the back of the elm bark beetle. So oh, that's something I didn't mention about. I don't think I mentioned that. An invertebrate pest is mm -hmm. the transfer of other fungi. So the, the elm bark beetle burrows into the branches of an elm tree to lay its eggs. And in doing so, passes on the Dutch elm disease fungus. You have something like ash dieback, where the spores are spread on the wind. Uh, they land on the fresh leaves of the ash tree. They sort of burrow in, and then they start doing their thing to create their new um, spores for the next generation and end up killing the tree. Then you have something like um, Cancastana plain, which is, so the fungus clogs up the vascular system <clears throat> it's called the vascular world because it in human terms it's basically strangling the tree it's cutting off its water supply and eventually kills it and these can act very very quickly and they can spread very rapidly so with canker stain it can either spread via root graft through root contact or um if you prune an infected tree and then use the same equipment and chainsaws to work on an uninfected tree, you're spreading the, the fungus, the disease that way. So there's a, a canal in France called the Canal du Midi, which is a World Heritage Site because of the plane trees surround, uh, that are lining this canal. Um, that's th Those plane trees are being devastated from that disease, which is mm. a real, real worry, real shame. Um, yeah, so... Those are particularly nasty disease. They're kind of classed as vascular wilt fungi. So they're not, um, you know, attractive, pretty fungi in the sense of the fruiting body they produce, but those are the real sort of primary pathogens or the tree killers. But then you have, in a different category of fungi, you have like the more um, wood decay fungi. So things like uh, Ganodermas, Perennoporias, Ridgedoporus, uh, later porous, so things like chicken of the woods, um, the southern bracket, artist bracket, uh, as they're sort of referred to here. So these are sort of heartwood decays. And I mentioned earlier about how um, a healthy tree that has just water, hydrated wood, functional wood, can prevent the spread of decay. So these are fungi that start to germinate start to develop once those areas of dysfunction happen and they are slowly because they're, they're quite slow acting they're slowly decaying the tree from the inside from the inside out but on a healthier tree it's continually producing new wood so every year as the tree grows wider puts on a new growth ring it um can outgrow the decay but where you have particularly stressed or weakened or damaged trees and some of the reasons that i mentioned earlier in that case, then the uh, 
decayed areas can outgrow the new growing areas. And yeah, when you have events like strong winds or hurricanes, all of a sudden the the wind forces upon the tree can exceed the tree's remaining strength and then you start to have trees blowing over, which in a natural ecosystem is part of that cycle of life. You know, you have the forest canopy, mm. the dense canopy in some areas, uh, the tree decays, it blows over, and all of a sudden you've got decaying wood going back into the soil, regenerating the soil, as well as a nice open area of sunlight hitting the ground where all the next generation of trees grow through. So from that perspective, it's just part of a natural ecosystem. It's ideal. But from a human risk perspective, particularly in built-up urban areas where you have a lot of sort of uh, static targets in the sense of people congregating or physical targets such as buildings or such, when you have sort of decaying trees that could fall over, it becomes a bit more of a risk issue. So... Yeah, so sadly, or from my perspective, sadly, some of these um, ecologically beneficial and naturally occurring fungi start to be seen as pests and problems. And that's not to mention the issues in uh, forest plantations where um, fungal decay is basically a loss of your economic output. Hmm. Great point. Can you tell me a little bit about honey fungus as well? Yeah, I'd love to. So for me, honey fungus is utterly fascinating because what I, what I didn't touch upon is that um, one of the things that can make trees more vulnerable to pests and diseases is overpopulation. So in a natural woodland you have, or a forest, you have an, a fairly, sometimes a fairly even or sparse distribution of trees. So unless it's something like uh a tree that would naturally grow from root suckers or trees that are more gregarious in their nature. By and large, across the natural woodland, you have more sparsely populated densities of trees, which can make it more difficult for individual pests and diseases to, to kind of develop and wipe their way through a population. It's one of the problems with forestry plantations is that you can have just pure monoculture. So a disease that would not normally, um, be able to succeed that well can just work its way like it's working like it's going along a buffet table because it's got its food mm. source but honey fungus for me is especially fascinating because it's basically nature's stump grinder it's the regulator of the forest ecosystem so pathogenically speaking if that's the right phrase honey fungus gets outcompeted and dominated and suppressed by other wood decay fungi so naturally it, it would kind of want to be decaying the stumps and the logs that are on the forest floor but all the other wood decay fungi can keep it at bay because they can they're all very aggressive and getting to that dead wood so in a quote-unquote healthy ecosystem something like honey fungus can be quite suppressed and where it's being outcompeted for deadwood on the ground, it might be able to find a weakened tree species and then it can sort of, you know, if I want a better phrase, euthanize or kill off that weakened tree. A bit like how um, a herd of lions might get the weakest gazelle. Hmm. 
That's a great analogy. Yes, in in the natural systems ecosystems, it's it's sort of kept kept down. But then also because it can spread, honey fungus can spread across the soil through these amazing bootlace like structures called rhizomorphs. One individual of honey fungus can spread across hundreds or thousands of miles. I think in Colorado in America, the largest known living organism is an underground network of honey fungus because it's all connected across the the soil and the roots. And the best analogy that I, for me, I heard comes from um, an academic and researcher in England called Dr. Duncan Slater. I've heard this secondhand from someone who studied under him, so I may have got this a little bit wrong, but he says, from what I gather, that honey fungus can be a bit like an old-fashioned um, mob boss. So <laughs> it, it, it has this ecosystem of trees. It's sort of out-competed for the deadwood, so it can go for the trees. But it's it wants its protection money from all, all the local business owners, all mm. the trees. But when it's not able to, when the tree's not able to pay its way, that's when the henchmen go and start throwing like breaking windows and breaking doors. It, it kind of wants wants the trees weakened and not sort of paying its way to the ecosystem. It can sort of go through and then kill off that tree. So for me, one of the more fascinating things about honey fungus is it's it's a naturally suppressed and weakened part of the forest ecosystem that's able to decay wood. It's then able to kill off individual trees. And then that creates canopy gaps. It creates sunlight going down to the woodland so it's part of that regenerative cycle of the natural woodland but where uh, people have people have messed things up is where you have pure monocultures say forestry plantations or arboretums or formal gardens where you're um quote unquote improving the soil with pesticides and with sprays you're raking up the leaves, you're raking up the dead wood. Uh, that was a big thing in England, was formal gardens where le- dead leaves and branches were seen as messy and untidy. So you're removing that decaying wood from the that ecosystem, which depletes the saprophytic species, which removes all the species that kept honey fungus suppressed and at bay. So it's all of a sudden you have this sort of controlled bully where the uh, supervisors have been removed. And then all of a sudden it, it can now get really aggressive and run rampantly. And it's, it's one of the fungi that can invade healthy trees through, through the roots. It can sort of secrete enzymes to penetrate the roots. And then all of a sudden it can now act in a way that it wouldn't do normally it can wow. tear through forestry plantations, killing off trees. It can kill off uh, shrubs and perennials and trees in ornamental collections as well. Um, and mm. this was a huge problem in like the 70s and the 80s and the 90s in in the UK, uh, particularly with in arboretums and formal gardens. It was huge problems from honey fungus. And then in the last sort of 20 or 20 years or so, as we've all of a sudden rediscovered the importance of dead wood habitat, of keeping uh, decaying leaves um, dead wood to allow it to grow back into the soil, what the problems of monocultures are. All of a sudden now, 
honey fungus is that there are still issues issues with it in ornamental areas but all of a sudden that problem's sort of going down a bit now that we have greater soil diversity different organisms that are able to outcompete and control honey fungus it's uh becoming less of a problem as as i see it as being less of a problem from what i understand anyway so that to me honey fungus is utterly fascinating anyway but i just find that particular example just incredible with how when you interrupt when you take basically what is of course the problems of people but when you alter that natural ecosystem you put things out of balance all of a sudden these more pathogenic well species that may have been a bit more benign then become pathogenic and yeah i i find that perhaps the best example one of the best examples but so fascinating as well and uh yeah i just got a big thing for honey fungus find it amazing <laughs> i love the analogy uh I, I can't remember where i heard it uh some magazine some science magazine um and they said that uh mycorrhizal fungi play a stockbroking role and i just love like these this fungi stuff they're so weird man so they're like constantly trading nutrients from different plants um <laughs> through their connections yeah. and stuff and deciding you know you live and you die yeah that's that's very much it i mean i can't point you to any references but i have heard and read cases where mycorrhizal fungi were implicated in the, in the decline of some trees because the tree wasn't wasn't doing what the fungus yeah. needed to it's not the same thing as the honey fungus but i i think it's a similar thing and yeah like you're not paying your way get you know we're gonna we're gonna take your pound of flesh basically yeah I mean, it, it's not perhaps not the best example but one thing i was have in my mind is um in your in the human digestive system you have all these microorganisms microbiomes that are crucial for your well-being but if you have something like leaky gut syndrome and then the bacteria leak out of your digestive system into your bloodstream, all of a sudden that that can be fatal. Mm. And I think that you know, can be perhaps not a direct transition, but it can, can at least be seen some way in, in trees and the ecosystem. Totally. So things like mycorrhizal fungi, they don't just provide nutrients and water to the tree. They can also protect against more harmful fungi as well so the mycorrhizal fungi can suppress things like honey fungus because especially the i think i always get my terms mixed up i think ectomycorrhiza so they're the ones that form a sheath on the outside of the roots that's in essence a protective barrier against harmful organisms as well so again part of that healthy soil that healthy soil ecosystem is a tree with mycorrhizal fungi because as much as anything it's just a perfect form of defense as well for the more pathogenic species but when you have things like you know, soil compaction you have high nitrogen levels in the soil pesticides copper sulfates um, or stripping out all the decaying wood then the mycorrhizal species suffer they deteriorate and then the tree becomes more susceptible to other problems as well yeah, we want those bodyguards and we want the mafia boss on our side saying, you know, <laughs> get out of town to all the pests. <laughs> we de definitely do indeed.
So I guess so far we've talked about vertebrate, invertebrate, and fungal pests and diseases. Now, I think that those are probably what most people think about when they think about pests and diseases. But what about bacterial and viral pests and diseases? Like, is that something that's big on your radar or? Um, it is and it isn't, to, to give you a pretty rubbish <laughs> answer. Um, so from a tree perspective, I think virus, virus and bacteria perhaps aren't quite as key as they are in horticulture. Um, right. Yeah, one of the things I think that gets overlooked with viruses is um, where you have variegated plants, because I, I could be completely wrong on this, but from my understanding was that some of the variegated plants where you have the lighter yellow areas of decorative leaves, sometimes that can be caused by viruses. So that, uh, well, I have my own view. <laughs> I have my own views on variegated <laughs> plants and trees. I'm not the biggest fan, mm -hmm. but I know that some people are. So, yeah. So again, like everything, there's beneficial viruses and bacteria, and then there's the harmful ones. So, yeah. So I don't often see. So part of my day to day work, the viruses, well, tree. <laughs> Coming out of COVID lockdowns, I'll say the tree viruses <laughs> aren't, as, aren't as big of an issue, but um, bacteria is becoming more of an issue. Because I mentioned earlier um, about a virus called Xylella fastidiosa. It's it's got a number of common names of which I can't remember. It's it's like a leaf blotch, and this is if there was a tree disease that would keep me awake at night, it'd be this one. There's a number of subspecies of Xylella, and across the entire sort of species complex, it has a range of host species that are literally hundreds of plants and trees, mm. and they're all quite economically important ones. So, be it timber trees, be it um, food trees like olives, or particularly important horticultural plants it can spread across all manner of species and it's it's spread by via sap sucking insects so again you can't really right. control it at all yeah other than trying to prevent it coming in and what happens is the insect lands on the tree starts sucking away at the sap spreads the bacteria and then quite rapidly it creates blotches on the leaves and can lead to um discoloration disfiguration eventual death of the leaves and the branches and the whole tree and it can happen very 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 quickly and mm. it's devastating olive crops across the, um, the mediterranean so again olives olive oil that's a really 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 so culturally it's a really significant really important tree to a lot of um mediterranean countries not to mention in terms of the food source and the economic importance of that species as well but that's one species being affected, and there's hundreds of host species, be it you know, bedding plants and trees. And one of the problems, big, big problems, is so the, the system that we have in the UK is it's known as a notifiable pest and a quarantine pest. So if you see symptoms of this disease, this bacterial disease, you have to notify the Forestry Commission, who are their kind of our government department for trees and tree health and biosecurity. If they confirm it, they'll basically 
destroy that host plant and then they'll destroy every susceptible host species in like a five kilometer radius which could be wow. a lot yep. and, and then there's basically <laughs> um, a replanting ban for several years of susceptible species wow. as well so i'm very very glad that we don't have that in the uk and doing our absolute best to prevent it and this is basically where biosecurity and responsible sourcing uh, comes in of, of trees and plants but that's mm-hmm. that's to me is the worst example of a bacteria affecting trees and plants um one of the other ones that we do have is it's a pseudomonas bacteria which predominantly affects well what I didn't know until real I know didn't know until recently is that there's a human pseudomonas which affects lungs, but in terms of plants, it, you have these sort of black weeping lesions on the trees. That's where areas of cambium have been killed off, and so if if the cambium is killed off, then the tree can't grow and regenerate from that area. So you have these sort of copper, coppery, browny, black lesions coming out of the tree. Uh, it, it affects um, Aeschylus species, horse chestnuts, which are yeah, not strong and quite brittle trees anyway. So in severe cases, it can have a really negative effect on the tree where it can either kill a tree outright or it can weaken a tree to let other uh, pests and diseases in. Or sometimes it can recover from that bacterial infection but it's either in such a weakened state or an aesthetically disfigured state that you end up just wanting to remove the tree. Um, mm. With viruses, going back to viruses, apart from the plumpox virus, which uh, I always thought would be an amazing name for like a death metal band, the, the, plumpox, the plumpox virus. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm not as, I don't come across viruses as much with trees because... I could be wrong on this, but to the best of my knowledge, it's more of an issue with uh, fruit production. So the virus impact on uh, leaves as well as the fruit. But um, I suppose I, I shouldn't say good and bad because fungi and bacteria, they're amoral, that they, they don't, they're doing what they do. But in terms of beneficial mm-hmm. and harmful, part of the natural, natural ecosystem, the viruses and the bacteria have a really, really, really important role in... Um, just the natural recycling of nutrients so although we predominantly see fungi and invertebrates as the main decayers uh, bacteria and viruses have a really important role in breaking down nutrients and sometimes being the primary agent that can break down uh, dead wood to then allow other species to come through so yeah so although they are quite most commonly seen for their uh, negative interactions of plants from like an ecosystem perspective they do have a very or well, some species do have a very important role in uh overall plant and tree health as well as our natural ecosystems absolutely so i guess that's one other reason why we just need to keep away from the chemicals unless it's as a last resort because anytime absolutely. you're spraying fungicides bactericides or i'm not sure quite sure what you call viral viral chemicals viricides <laughs> I've got no but, idea. Yeah, you're going to affect the <laughs> you're affecting the whole ecosystem. Yeah, especially because um, I know that quite a few of these um, insecticides and fungicides contain things like uh, copper sulfates and stuff, which mm-hmm. will have a negative. Say you, you spray 
an ornamental tree in your garden or your arboretum, there's going to be drift off, which will land on the soil. And then without intending, you're killing off the soil bacteria and the soil fungi, which are exactly the things that you want in a good, healthy soil. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, it's also, if it's a systemic chemical, it's going to be in the roots and it's going to go way further than what you could even imagine. Absolutely, yeah. So what about abiotic diseases? What does the term abiotic disease mean? So abiotic is non-living. So um, you know, vertebrate and invertebrate pests are living, so they're biotic factors. Human, di- human damage to a tree is a biotic factor. Uh, fungi are biotic. But a- abiotic are things that, you know, well, like I said, they're, they're non-living, so it, it can range from anything from um, forest fires to climate impacts to floods to droughts to natural phenomenon. And then you can have things like uh, salt stress from um, mm. spraying salt across a car park, um, physical wounding, um so one example is in London, um, utility companies, infrastructure companies kind of almost have a free reign to do what they want. So they quite often put their put their diggers through tree roots when they're digging up pavements to put in mm. new <laughs> fibre optic cables. So that's a, a biotic problem, which is causing damage to the trees. Um, compaction, soil compaction, I said that earlier, that would be a biotic factor. It's a it's an abiotic factor that would then lead to biotic problems. I got that if I got that the right way around. Abiotic <laughs> problem leading to bio yeah. So those are kind of so in themselves well, I suppose depends how you define disease. So I suppose my understanding of a disease is something that neg- negatively impacts the long term health of the host species. So I suppose you could class the impact of abiotic problems as a form of disease but they definitely mm. open up or they, they cause stress they cause stress to the trees they damage the trees and they open it up to other biotic diseases but um yeah one example i, I would use in okay so i'll, I'll use an australian, australian example that i do know so a couple of years ago i read an article about in melbourne years ago they mass planted the hybrid plane tree london plane so something yep. like 60 to 70% of that city's tree population was plane trees. And mm-hmm. because it gets so hot, all the seed seed fluff coming off the tree, as well as the um, the downy hairs that were coming off of the leaves, were causing such a major respiratory issue to people, a combination of the heat as well as the what was coming off the tree. Is it there's a becoming a quite a significant health problem? So then they, then they then had to look at significantly reducing the population of plane trees across the city. So then, of course, any time people start talking about removing trees, people get upset about it. Mm-hmm. Especially the plane trees, people love them here, and I do too. They're gorgeous trees. Yeah, they've they've been a significant part of my career, but they're not quite as not quite as loved over here in England. I think right. I think that the respiratory thing is an issue. As someone who has mild asthma, yeah, yeah. I don't love that aspect of them. Oh, it's horrible. I've developed a bit of an um, analogy to it in recent years, which is 
ironic oh. for me, given that the bulk the bulk of my job revolves around <laughs> plane trees. But um, oh, it, it's it's horrible. It's like breathing in fiberglass or having it stuck in your eyes. Mm. It's, Oh, bl- I've blown it in the past with blowers until I learned. No, this is the plant that does this to me every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's um, it's outside Buckingham Palace in London, which is where the Queen's residence. We've got this road called the Mal, which is lined by London Plain. It's a really, really wide road because uh, allegedly it had to be wide enough for a plane to take off down the road in case of an emergency. <laughs> anyway, so it, it's lined with London Plain. So this, it's, you get these waves of like these sort of yellow fluff all over the road because of the seeds coming off of it and when it's windy you just have these cyclones of london plain seeds mm. and it's 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 horrible it's really really horrible but um yeah so that, that was i <laughs> i had the habit of going off on tangents but i was <laughs> i started that off by talking about heat so in in london the temperatures have been rising steadily over years which we, we just had uh, a 34 degree day recently which from an, an england perspective is is horrible it's very very hot but because we're having progressively warmer summers and less rainfall so the trees so there's less water going into the soil not to mention the lack of um, water penetration to the soils because of the, the built environment so drought stress is becoming more of an issue because of lack of water availability and then higher temperatures um, basically mean that the temperature becomes too hot for trees to photosynthesize effectively. So the trees will self-regulate their energy use and their water loss by uh, reducing their own photosynthesis. On trees like the silver lime, Tilia tomentosa, they have this amazing trick where they can just flip the leaf upside down to sort of show the, the silvery side to reflect the sun away which is amazing or in many cases like the london plain you get to july or august and then they just shed their leaves so i've seen streets in london in july and august where you think it's october or november because of the leaf loss so again um that of course has an impact on tree health because if the tree is not photosynthesizing it's not creating energy it's not putting that energy into growing it's not able to defend itself so that to me is one of the bigger abiotic problems is um, the impact of climate change and the increase of temperatures the um, the impact of how temperatures increase but also the lack of water availability um, and I mentioned soil compaction earlier on so those are kind of really really bad problems um, and then you know salt stress as well is a big big problem because you know over the winter we, we uh, grit and salt our roads quite often a lot there's going to be a lot of um sort of drift and spray going into tree roots in my local train station car park there's a tree that i've seen progressively declining over the last five years because they've got a salt bucket right on the root plate of that tree um and despite my emails they haven't bothered to change it or do anything um yeah, so abiotic problems, they're kind of, sometimes I think they're easier to see, easier to notice, because a lot of the biotic factors, unless it's a, a super nasty tree disease like ash dieback or Dutch elm, they, they tend to be quite slow acting and they're part of a natural process, whereas the more abiotic factors, they're 
unnatural. They're quite often man-made. In the case of construction damage, you, you can very visibly see where damage has happened to a tree. Um, the long-term impacts of soil compaction, yes, that can happen over a long time, be quite hard to see. But you know, things like drought stress and environmental conditions, uh, frost damage, as no, no real I've not talked about that. Those can be a bit more easy to see and sometimes easier to manage. I mean, from a local mm. perspective, you can't do a lot to help one tree when a city's temperatures are aggressively getting warmer, but you can perhaps water it more. You mm. can improve the growing conditions. Um, you can try and do things to protect the tree from construction damage. And put the right tree in the right place Absolutely to start that. with. Pitting the, yeah, pitting the right <laughs> tree in the right place. That's Yeah, sometimes I have a bit of an issue with that saying because not it's not often nuanced and caveated by what could be the right trees and what are the right places, but it, it is very much a fundamental thing of the best thing you can do when planting a tree is making sure that you've got the right species of tree for that environment. Yeah, you, and you can do things such as looking at the soil type, soil requirements, what the requirements of the trees are, what the actual um, ultimate height and size of the tree will be, what the water demand of the tree might be, and what are the potential issues that might come from the tree as well. But yeah, very much pl planting the correct tree is <laughs> very much planting the correct species and planting it properly and taking care of it in its developing years are the the absolute best ways to prevent almost any potential problem. Mm. Well said, Greg. Thanks. Mate, there's one question that I always like to ask my guests. Is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? Okay, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. I'll try and be as concise as I can. So I do a lot of public engagement work with trees i do a lot of tree walks and presentations and i kind of have a few golden rules on my walks that everyone has to stick to and the first and most important one is every tree that on the walk every tree that we come to but every tree that you go and see touch it touch the tree physically feel it smell it get to know the tree because once you start getting more tactile with it you start to experience it in different ways you can just the feel of the bark the texture of the leaves just the sound of the wind through the trees um, you can have certain species such as uh, walnuts or liquid amber for sweet gum where if you crush the leaf you have the most amazing aroma coming from the leaves which ironically is the tree's inbuilt <laughs> insect repellent to prevent the sap-sucking insects but to us it smells amazing um yeah so to me that's just one of the most important and best ways to have a deeper interaction with trees and plants is just something as simple as physically touching and sensing the tree um the other one my other golden rule on my walks are that there's no such thing as stupid questions just my or someone else's ability to give a good answer or not and to your stupid question could be somebody else's crucial question that they don't know. Um, and also just not comparing yourself to other people in terms of where you feel your knowledge is. I do that, especially on my tree identification walks. Um, 
is everyone's on their own journey very much be it mental spiritual physical or educational with trees and plants i feel it's very much a personal journey and exploration so unless you're taking inspiration from somebody else I'd, i always say just don't compare your own progress and knowledge to other people's because you'll always find a way to think i'm not as good as that person um then yeah in terms of what i'd love to see i don't know what it's like in australia but in the uk our legal protections of trees are really really inadequate we have tree preservation orders which do offer legal protection to trees but they are predominantly based on visual amenity um and it's based on a very 1980s definition mm. of what makes an attractive tree i i see them as quite inadequate for the modern world um there's no real heritage designation for our trees there's no legal automatic protection for ancient trees you know we've got trees in the uk that are 2000 plus years old with almost no bespoke legal protection for them as ancient trees um so i i one thing that i'm desperate to see would absolutely love to see is increased legal protection and adequate enforcement on the breach of legal protection for trees real recognition and protection of ancient trees because ecologically they're utterly vital but from a societal and cultural perspective as well they, they are our living history they're vital but there's nothing nowhere near enough to protect them that's also i i know of uh statues monuments and gravestones that are kind of they're referred yeah. to as like grade one listed or grade two listed under having heritage designations and for all the best will in the world what is essentially um mm -hmm. a nicely carved stone or a well put together pile of bricks has more legal protection than something as amazing as an ancient tree and the entire ecosystem it supports absolutely yeah and you know without getting too negative in the next hundred years we could very we could very realistically see a situation where we don't have those trees anymore be it the forest fires in california well forest fires in australia as well um the drought issues that we can have in the uk pests and diseases um yeah and i suppose a final point i'd love to mention is uh yeah it always encourage everyone to embark on their own journey with trees get involved in community groups public engagement um in in england i'm involved in an organization called the urban tree festival with a uh, every it's always usually the third week in may um we're expanding across england and, and more the rest of the united kingdom but uh yeah we have spoken to a couple, a couple of people in australia before so um yeah no matter where, where you are in the world if you want to celebrate your urban trees check out the urban tree festival it might be something you could do to celebrate your own urban trees um yeah and yeah get involved with group celebrating trees celebrate and appreciate trees and plants because they're well to me they're they are the most fascinating and vital organisms in the world really i couldn't agree more check the show notes for links 
and we'll make sure we actually put quite a few links in there to send people uh, if they want to know where to go next. Thanks so much for your time, Greg. That's fine. Thanks for having me on. It's been enjoyable. It's been interesting. Okay, now you know everything you need to know about tree health problems. Just joking. This episode was really an overview of the biggest categories of pests, diseases, and causes of stress. If you like this sort of content, scroll through the Plants Grow Here back catalogue for similar episodes, including episode 96, How to Prune Correctly, episode 78, Attracting Predatory Insects to Control Garden Pests Naturally, or episode 61, Intro to Insect Pests.